From Forward, Montana, this is What the Helena. Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of What the Helena. If you listened to last week's episode, then you already know that Forward Montana intern David Alangen is bringing us an exploration of the affordable housing crisis in Montana. On Sunday, we got to hear from Hermina Harold from Trust Montana about the past, present, and future of affordable housing organizing in the state. If you haven't already listened to that interview, highly recommend giving it a listen. Today, we get to bring you a conversation with Heidi West from Missoula City Council to discuss some of the tools that local governments will and won't have after this legislative session to address their local affordable housing crises. I learned a lot from this interview, and I think you will too. Enjoy! Hey folks, welcome back to the What the Helena special feature on affordable housing. Happy to welcome you to part two. Uh, Last time we talked to Ermina Harold of Trust Montana, and today I've got the pleasure of sitting down with Councilwoman Heidi West um, from Missoula City Council. Heidi, how you doing? Good. All right. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for being here. Uh, So go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Tell us where you're from, what your experiences have been in affordable housing, because um, you, like Ermina, you're a veteran of the game. Um, so yeah, uh, tell us a little, a little bit about where you've been. Um, sure. So I moved to Missoula in 2009. Um, I came from Oklahoma. I have a background in um, poly- political science, uh, studio art, and then I went to go on and get a master's in soil chemistry, um, which makes Total sense. Um, and then <laughs> I moved to Missoula uh, because my husband got an AmeriCorps position here um, with MUD. And so he actually lived on the old MUD site that used to be on the north side for a year. And then um, we've never left the north side. Uh, so uh, my experience with housing, I guess, started as a renter in Missoula. Mm. And we moved here with two dogs and a 14 month old. And my husband was earning, I think, I think his stipend from AmeriCorps was like $800 a month. Um, and I couldn't find a a daycare spot uh, for my kiddo that was under two. Uh, it's incredibly hard to find quality daycare in Missoula. And so I ended up just being essentially priced out of the job market for a while um, by the cost of daycare. And so we spent some time renting in Missoula. We rented some horrible places. uh, And uh, in the end, we ended up having the opportunity to actually purchase a house um, with the help of a family member. I, you know, I feel like that's the millennial down payment assistance program is that we usually have uh, a very, you know, someone in our family that's willing to help us purchase a home. Um, and so we ended up buying a house on the north side that was pretty much a teardown. Gotcha. Um, but then spent, you know, years saving and planning and dreaming and seven months living in a bus in the backyard while we <laughs> um, rebuilt that house. Like, we're almost done. It's been a really long journey. And so I think, you know... Uh, my personal experience with housing is that, you know, you really want to have to stay in Missoula and make it work um, because Missoula is an amazing place. And sometimes it really takes some out of the box creative thinking to make it work, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, 
sucks. It'd be nice if it was easier to live here. And that's why we're talking that's today. That's why we're talking. We're, we're, um, we're hoping that people in the future don't have to navigate that labyrinth of, yeah. of, of struggling for housing. Yeah. Well, and I ended up running for city council um, because I, well, I was asked to. Um, and it all came out of organizing around the cleanup of White Pine Sash, which is the super fun site that used to be at the end of my street. Mm-hmm. I have a soil chemistry degree and was a stay-at-home mom at the time and uh, didn't, you know, I guess have anything else to do than actually, you know, read the report and really question its validity, um, which is very similar to what we're going through now with the other super fun, the Burlington Northern Rail Yard site, also on the north side. So it's kind of how I ended up in council. Um mm-hmm. And also uh, ended up working for the North Missoula Community Development Corporation for several years, um, first as a community organizer and then running their land trust program. And I was a project manager on their last um, affordable housing project. So, I mean, housing touches every part of our lives, um, you know, professional, personal. So it's a big conversation. Yeah. Um we we discussed uh our listeners are going to be familiar with uh with those land trusts um we spoke to Armina Harold last time about her work in in CLTs um and we also discussed uh where her work is going to be looking uh with the context of the current legislative session in mind so i i'd love i love to start off by um by talking a little bit about what you're paying attention to in the legislative session. We, we did discuss um, the inclusionary zoning um, aspect of, of the CLT work that Armina does. Um, but how, how does that particular bill look at the ground level um, in Missoula? Yeah. So House Bill 259 yes. is the, the bill that is really restricting what local governments will be able to do. It's definitely a bill that we've kept an eye on, um, both at the city level um, and as a council level. We were moving towards the direction of potentially having an inclusionary zoning policy. We don't currently have one. Um, and our, our housing policy, which was passed a couple of years ago, it was something that was called out to be monitored. And just based on some of the statements I've heard, you know, the mayor make in public meetings and, uh, you know, statements that staff members have made, I think as a community, it it was something that was definitely still on the table as a tool, um, which if this bill passes, which it looks like it will, mm-hmm. um, that is, you know, effectively not an option for us anymore. Right. So uh, we also talked with Ermina then, what, what do things look like going forward with that tool, uh, you know, out of our kit? And we, we talked about several of the different options um, I, I was very happy to, to hear from Ermina that she's got a lot of ideas and, and, and thinks that we've still got a lot going for us. Um, one thing that she mentioned was the housing trust fund that Missoula passed recently. Is that correct? Yeah. So we uh, passed a housing trust fund um, last summer. Um, that was also kind of the first fundamental, like, huge thing that was called out in our housing policy um, to be done. And it's a really exciting thing. Um, if you work in housing, you know just how limited the different funding sources are that can subsidize your housing. And so you really are stuck with um, the federal sources that are available, which is basically home funding and community development block grant funding, um, which are federal and then they're passed through to the state or 
um, participating jurisdictions. So like Missoula is one of them. Um, and then there's some state level housing available, but that's about it. And there's never enough to go around. Um, there's millions and millions of really great projects that go through that competitive process every year and only a portion of them get funded. And so having a local resource not only lets us, you know, just have a pool of money that is under our control. It's not like the state's not going to take it away. The the Congress isn't going to take it away. These are things that every year there's a little bit of a, a panic um, because somebody proposes it to be cut somewhere. Right. <laughs> you know, and so this is under local control, hopefully set up in a way that it's fairly stable and, you know, won't go away. Um, and the other thing is, is that it can be more flexible. So HUD money, especially, um, comes with so many rules and it only works for specific purposes. And, you know, those are important purposes, but we know in Missoula, there's a whole missing middle of housing too, um, that those federal funds don't support. And so the local housing trust fund will just have more options on how it can be spent, Mm -hmm. um, you know, based on community need what our local environment is. And right now uh, we're actually in the process of interviewing all the members or all the applicants to be on the housing trust fund committee. Um, It's not, I think we had 47 or something. I mean, a huge pool of applicants, which is exciting. That's incredible. A lot of times we get like two or, you know, not enough for like the design review board or, you know, we have lots of committees that need need people to participate and so it was really exciting to just see how many people applied to be on this board and I know there's like interviews going on and then um you know there'll be recommendations on which people will be on that committee mm-hmm. so that's I mean and it's a technically an oversight board so that's really that's really exciting um and then once that's in place then you know all those other bits of how the the trust fund will actually be administered or going to be figured out. Mm-hmm. So. so that trust fund is that ability to have a pool of money that you can pull from at a local level sort of legitimizes and, and makes more viable the local power that you are trying to retain. We've been talking about the, the attempts by the legislative session to minimize, diminish the local power that uh, counties and cities have. So, um, what what do you think that specifically looks like in Missoula? Um, and can you expand a little bit more on that idea of retaining local power and the community's ability to make decisions for itself? Yeah, I, I should backtrack and just make sure that everybody knows that I'm mm-hmm. a single city council member. Yes. So I can't speak for council as a whole. Um, it's a majority rule body. Um, and so, you know, sometimes that means there's things that pass that don't have, you know, universal support, uh, mm-hmm. but the, the housing policy and the housing trust fund, I do believe did. Let me back up. So with this, uh, preemption bill on inclusionary zoning, um, that leaves us relatively few tools on the table. But one thing that the city can do is land bank. Um, that is something that we was also called out in housing policy. Um, and that allows us to purchase land and put conditions on it when we sell it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we recently did this with the Scott Street 
site, um, which is the former white pine sash, super fun site. Uh, so uh, 10 acres of it were cleaned up to our residential standard. Uh, and those 10 acres, um, the city just recently sold to a developer. Three of those acres are actually going to be a, a large community land trust project, but it comes with all sorts of rules. <laughs> so it includes like there needs to be a daycare as a part of this development. It needs to have this amount of affordable housing that meets these goals. You know, it really allows there to be a lot of strings put on or a lot of conditions put on a project that meet our broader community goals. And it's not a part of zoning. Mm-hmm. You know, it is it is a part of that sale process. Um, and And at the same time, it also funds the housing trust fund. So in the case of that that particular transaction, the it added $1.7 million to the housing trust fund. Um and will hopefully bring, you know, 70 permanently affordable homes to Missoula as well. So I think lane banking um is one tool we have left. Um and the Missoula Redevelopment Agency um often is I guess the entity that is that has the capital to purchase the land in the first place, and so they are a pretty active partner, you know, in our goals to provide more affordable housing options in Missoula. So both both you and Armina have touched on redevelopment at this point. Um, can you expand a little bit more on on what redevelopment typically entails and what it looks like in Missoula? Yeah, so uh, the Missoula Redevelopment Agency um, creates TIF districts um, that, that that stands for tax increment financing. Um, and there there are state statutes that define, you know, what sorts of criteria these districts have to meet. Um, and a big part of that is that it needs to redevelop or get rid of blight. Um, and so at the time of its creation, so, you know, if it was created 10 years ago, it's based on what the conditions were 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically the district borrows against the future tax revenue of that area um, and then invests in those portions of the project that interface with the public. And so, um a great example is uh, Lee Gordon Place. So that was the CLT project that I was uh, project manager for Manager for, for the NMCDC. Um, the MRA helped us build those units by paying for the public right-of-way improvements and for the deconstruction of the original site. But one thing the MRA is specifically allowed to do is to purchase land for, you know, especially affordable housing. Uh, so they can buy land, for example, for permanently affordable housing. And there's actually um, a development right at the end of the street where we are now um, that was land that was bought. I believe they paid uh, like 500000 for it mm-hmm. right around in that area. And then they sold it to Homeward at half the price um, because Homeward provides permanently affordable housing. And so that awesome. met the criteria. And so... Often the MRA is this intermediary tool, either providing direct funding to affordable housing projects or, you know, making the projects possible, mm-hmm. like in the case of Homer in that scenario. So, um, yeah, it's a really important tool 
to have. And especially when we're losing policy tools, you know, inclusionary zoning is a policy tool that would have been part of our zoning, you know, code. Um, then we just need to rely on these alternative tools that we still have to, to get to those bigger goals. Yeah. So it's really important to make sure that we're protecting those remaining tools in the long run. Um, you mentioned that the concept of preemptive action by the legislative session to take away the options that we might be turning to as we see tools stripped away on specific measures. One thing that I was appalled to see, and I think there's been several instances of that sort of measure or movement being taken on various policy areas. One of them that I was shocked to see was that a while back, Montanans voted to claim the ability to make decisions democratically about nuclear energy in the state. I was appalled to see a, a measure that was uh, moving through the session to revoke that ability that Montanans voted for. What's rumbling in the state along that same line? You know, I think there's um, a lot of different preemption um, legislation that's happening this year at the state level. It almost touches almost every area of local government. I think there's some areas that are particularly worrisome. Um, there is uh, some revision, for example, to subdivision regulations on the state level that no longer will allow agricultural land to be a part of the decision-making process. Um, and I think, you know, in a community like Missoula, um, and probably across the state, actually, we're, we're a largely agricultural state. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we really value uh, local agriculture and food production as both a, you know, means for providing a livelihood, but also as a sustainability measure. I think COVID really showed us that, um, that, that we have a really fragile food system. Um, I think, you know, just having major outbreaks in a few like meat processing plants across the country, like had a huge effect. And so making sure that that is a local resource we consider, um, is important. And it's, it's really short-sighted, uh, to take that ability away. That doesn't necessarily impact city council as much as it maybe would um, county level decisions, um, but it's definitely worrisome. Um, some other things that are happening um, that are really contrary to, I would say, Missoula values is the uh, basically the preemption on being able to make any sort of policy around food containers, um, which includes plastic ban bags. Missoula has a zero waste you know, yeah. resolution yes. and we have benchmarks and goals that we're trying to attain. And I would say in Missoula, we probably have broad support for a plastic bag ban. And I and uh, Stacey Anderson and a few other people were actually working on a plastic bag ban at the beginning of COVID. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, due to a national pandemic and some uh, us not being sure how the virus spread and all sorts of things. We just uh, opted to hold off and learn more about the science before we brought it forward again. You know, now we are unlikely to have that option. Um, and it, it is really contrary to, I think, local values. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's something that should be within our rights to do as a community and also our long-term sustainability. You know, it's really hampered by those things. And one thing I really want to bring up, because I think it has a huge effect on public participation and democracy, uh, is, I guess it's 
House Bill 436, yeah. which basically allows or, or takes away the ability of local jurisdictions to limit uh, firearms in public mm-hmm. spaces. And, and when you think of public spaces, you know, I think of courtrooms, for example, or parks, or uh, my kid's school, or, you know, a city council where, uh, you know, when we're meeting in person, it's a very close space between us and the public. And I'm less worried about, you know, someone coming into that space with a gun. Um, What I'm more worried about is that it just instills a feeling to the general public that they aren't safe in public spaces. And I think that people that are vulnerable, um, people that, you know, already are kind of pushed out of this process, um, that it will have the most like detrimental effect on them um, from being able to engage in local government, you know, and local land use decisions on all sorts of things that affect their lives and, I think it's just uh, almost it, it's almost less about guns and more about just undermining that that public participation of everyday citizens in a process that they should feel welcome in. Yeah. And that is I mean it's just it's really sad. It's an intense <laughs> confluence of simultaneously the the fact that the citizen support for measures like that firearm control are at odds with the preemptive measures being taken. And then that is part and parcel of the vicious cycle that occurs in which the very people that need their voices heard by governing bodies are the very people that are being held down and kept out of that process, like you said. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult to break out of because it, is so self-reinforcing mm-hmm. how yeah how do, how do you how do you see that dynamic well, well and i think it's it, it might not even it probably isn't even the intent um you know and i think the difference between intent and effect mm-hmm. you know i think there is a difference there and and in this case i think the effect um is just um it you know it's it's really detrimental to public participation and i think i know as a um you know council um we are having conversations about well okay these are the new rules potentially right like yeah. at the end of the legislation or legislative session we are looking forward um and then having conversations about how can we make our spaces still feel welcoming and safe um I don't think we've figured that out yet, um, but we're definitely having those conversations because we do want, especially those folks that, that already are at the margins, um, you know, not to be pushed out um, because they don't feel safe. Like that's, you know, mm-hmm. we'll have to figure it out. One one thing that I've been thinking about that that is a way to bring in people that are that are in difficult housing situations is unionization. As far as uh, tenant unionization goes, housing unions, um, I was surprised to learn that Missoula and the state broadly, there are no tenant unions as far as I'm aware. That was rather shocking to me. I sort of just assumed that there was one. How do you understand the the current viability of unions, uh, specifically tenant unions in Missoula and Montana? And do you think that uh, do you think that these unions can be created in the future? What's holding them back 
Yeah. Well, I think Montana especially has a really strong history with unions. Usually, of course. Um, more on the labor labor side of things. Um, we used to have the largest union in the world, I think, in Butte mm-hmm. back in its heyday. Yeah, um, the, the mining unions are, are exactly why I figured there was that right? institution. Um, no, and so I think uh, landlord-tenant law is, is interesting in Montana. One thing to note is, is pretty much all of that lives at the state level. Um, there's very, very few things that uh, local jurisdictions can do in regard to reining in landlords or making rules about landlords. And so I think um, it, it would be great to have, you know, a, a body that could effectively lobby for renters. And because so much of it is at the state level, like it really needs to be a coordinated statewide effort. Um, I think in Missoula, we are super aware that that is an area that we don't have a lot of influence on because um, we do, I mean, we hear from renters. Uh, most of my neighborhood is renters. We are, I think, 50, like 57% or something like that of my neighborhood is renters. And it, it it's, I think, a, a group of people that is in some ways disenfranchised uh, because of, you know, especially because of the ability to do anything locally around, you know, renting. Um, But I think there are steps that the city is taking um, to help either facilitate better relationships between landlords and renters, and especially helping people that are at risk get, you know, access to safe and affordable and quality rental housing. And I uh, like the landlord liaison that's currently housed at Homeward. Um, I think that's one step into really being able to advocate for the the people that are, you know, maybe in the most precarious rental positions. And then the city is also hoping to, at some point, um, have a one-stop shop for background checks where a yes. person can only, you know, get it in one place and then it's good at all these different rental companies so that you're not paying you know for a background check at every different Mm -hmm. rental place i've been i've been looking for for a new place for the past like year or so and that's been that's been really debilitating yeah for sure and application fees are i mean especially if you're already on the limited budget Mm -hmm. they're a real barrier i mean on top of having to have you know your first and last month's rent or like a deposit then also having these fees to even just apply is, you know, it can just keep you from being able to move forward. Yeah. So. And I think it's fair to say that Missoula can make that sort of program happen without the without the structure of an organizational tenant union um, being in place. Do you think that that's the case broadly in Montana? Do you think that the unions are are necessary or would be necessary to make that kind of work happen at the city council level in other cities? I think in Missoula, we're pretty fortunate because I feel like we've, uh, for the last, you know, at least 10 years, maybe a little longer, we've been in a position where there's fairly close alignment and values between the administration and council and, and I think the values that the broader public has as well. I know that's not always been the case. I yeah. hear stories about horribly contentious city council meetings <laughs> that um, I have never been a part of, but probably were fairly, 
frustrating or entertaining to watch either way. Um, but I think, so I think we're in a pretty good position to set up, um, you know, what's hopefully sustainable infrastructure. Cause I would also not assume that, you know, you know, things local electeds, you know, get voted out or new people replace, um, you know, we're about to run into a new election year for the mayor, for example. Like, I wouldn't assume that this is how things work into the future. So I think setting up systems that are sustainable and um, that one person can't just dismantle is important. Um, I do think that other communities, before I go there, I, I also think we are really lucky to have the advocacy groups that we do. Yeah. Like, we have amazing nonprofits and just community organizers that have really been active and, you know, I think we all work in pretty good partnership um, to getting, like, we, we need that to get those big yeah. goals done. And so I think in Missoula, we just have a really collaborative climate that's allowed us to do things that might not happen other places. Um, it sounds like it's allowed you to make happen what otherwise would require the structure of a union, which is unfortunately restricted by state level policy. Is that correct? Well, is that, think, is that a fair, is that a fair way to assess it? You know, I think uh local action that a union might ask for mm -hmm. um, is restricted at the state level. Yes. So I think, I think we could have a Missoula, you know, renters union. I think that would be great. Mm -hmm. I think there would be very few things that the Missoula City Council could do on a on a bigger policy scale um, that would, you know, further say the mission of the union, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Um, because I think a lot of those things are, you know, <laughs> I have whole legal opinions from our city attorney on, you know, whether or not we can institute rent controls or, or those sorts of things. Those are tools we don't have um, now. And then that, you know, that is where I think um, change should be, you know, maybe, right. you know, pushed for because it would be nice to have more tools. But, you know, with this legislative session, we're not, we're not seeing change in that direction. So, um but yeah, I think, uh, I know there's communication between other jurisdictions that are, you know, reaching out to city staff and asking us about, you know, how, you know, how did they do the housing trust fund and how do, you know, do those things work? So I do think that there is desire to put some of these things in place in other communities. And I'm sure that, you know, we had, to be clear, like we had broad public support <laughs> for both the housing policy and the housing trust fund, right? So, yep. um you know, I think that that support, I think, you know, public support to get those big things established is vital. And, and you know, there's no way we'd be doing it without buy-in. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I guess actually takes me back to this uh, kind of this, this uh, preemption process that is happening, uh, especially this legislative session, is that a lot of these policies that whether it's around uh, accessory dwelling units, you know, it's been a 10 year, if not longer process to like get, first of all, allow them, like that was a very big battle. And then from that there to, 
you know, allow them in all zoning districts and then to remove the conditional use process because that's a huge barrier and it takes time and, you know, it just wasn't a very good process. And then, you know, the next step was to really evaluate whether or not the parking requirements worked. And then kind of the last edit we've done to the ADU policy is around the owner occupancy requirement, which you probably aren't even aware, but it, it used to be that one of the units had to have uh, the primary, had to be owner-occupied. Yes. And and in theory, that's great. Um, but there's sometimes there's a disconnect between policy and then, you know, the lending industry in this case, where it was incredibly hard to finance something that came with these deed restrictions, essentially. And, and it just was a non-starter. And so unless you had enough capital to just not get a construction loan, <laughs> you weren't able to build an ADU. And, and so we revised that last year. And so we've gone through this really long process to get to where we are now. But it also has allowed the opportunity for people to become educated, to become comfortable to not be afraid that ADUs are going to ruin their neighborhood. You know, it has allowed for this journey that we took as a community. And and I think that's important. And that's like what responsive local government is. Like that's a really, yeah. it's a process. And a lot of these bills in the state legislature aren't sensitive to public process. That has happened in a community, and then it also just forces a solution. If we call it, if it's a solution, even maybe it creates a problem, but it just forces something that doesn't have that like public support or the buy in. And I think it is much more likely to, you know, trigger fears and, and, you know, it's, it's being done to people instead of being done with people. Yeah. And I think that's a big difference. And I wish our our state legislature was more accessible. Like it, it structurally, it's not very accessible. You know, it's every two years. You know, everything happens in like four months, five months. It's you know, a firestorm. It's, I've it's, been trying to keep up, making I, notes on bills, watching hearings, and, and it's just it's a tidal wave. It's, yes. A tsunami of, of information. And then they die and then they get blasted back to the floor. And yeah. then, you know, it's just incredibly fast and it just doesn't. And I don't think this is necessarily like a, a fault with individual legislators, even. Mm-hmm. Like it is a system and a process that is not very conducive to people engaging. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think, I think some of the remote public comment systems that have come into place during COVID have actually been rather impressive. Um, But until, until our system in Montana of, of legislative session timing and structure changes, um, what can folks at home be, be doing to stay engaged at a local level uh, with their own city councils? You you can obviously be making public comment um, at these state level uh, hearings, um, but, but at the ground level, what can, what can people be doing to, to stay tied in? and to stay uh, in support of their community? You know, I think um, there are so many things happening all the time that it is really hard yeah. to, you know, engage or to not feel overwhelmed. Um, I think, you know, city council is, you know, it's a it's probably the most accessible level of government. 
Um, and I think uh, we have neighborhood councils too um, that people can join. And then, you know, if there are specific things you're interested in, uh, whether it's land use or housing policy or uh, art calls, like you can sign up for emails um, that are specific to those categories. Um, so you can get notified when things happen. Um, there also are, there's a new website called Engage Missoula that mm-hmm. often calls for public, you know, just different projects that are happening, allows people to comment. We get reports on specific projects Then when, you know, staff presents or whatever, those comments will be included. And I think, I mean, most of the policy work that happens in this community or, or some of it, especially when it's like new new concepts. So for example, we did a exotic animal ban, for example. <laughs> <laughs> for so, you know, so you couldn't bring like elephants and the tiger. Tigers, right. like those sorts of things uh, into, you know, and just have them for entertainment. Like you yeah. are allowed to have them for educational purposes. There's some like asterisks there. Um but that came from a constituent. Like that was an issue that yeah. was important to somebody that felt like, you know, and so it, it, there was this whole process of like, you know, this constituent talked to a city council person and then this whole policy was built out of that. And I think that is one thing that's great about this level of government. Like you can actually create policy yeah. for your community and and it's super accessible. Um, it's definitely difficult to get, to, to not get caught up in well, you could go down the line. For me, it's difficult to not get caught up in national level politics. Um, right. Staying in, staying in, in engaged with what's happening in DC can be completely consuming if you let it. And the same goes as you step down the ladder. If you're like me, you also, once you've got engaged in state level matters and, and measures and issues, um, were like stuck there. I was definitely stuck in that firestorm of the legislative session. So it's important to to be proactive about keeping yourself grounded at, at the stuff that's right right next door, for sure. I think to get involved in politics, I never intended to get involved in politics. Gotcha. I never intended to like, just, <laughs> it was an accident, right? Like, yeah. you know, there was this thing at the end of my street that I really cared about that I felt like I could add to the conversation um and that is what I got engaged about and then it ended up turning into this like larger bigger thing and I think that's kind of key like you're the expert of your own life and you know there are things that you know your passions and your talents and and those are valuable and I think uh as a local elected official like I know I'm not an expert on probably anything and that (laughs) there are people in my community that are. Yeah. And I think that that is. Yeah. Your council members need your help. Right. You you need to, you need to let them know what's up because they might not. Yeah. And so like, if you are, you know, if your expertise is, I don't know, like. Soil chemistry. Right. Like, like then, then like share that, Yeah, you know, because it is, it is this thing of, you know, we see all sorts of different things and I think we're generalists and, and I'm a connector. I think that is what my strong suit is, is that, you know, I will hear one thing and I'll see a presentation on another thing and then somebody will mention, you know, a need and, and I just 
like putting people together that can solve problems. And to be honest, like I don't have to be a part of that solution because <laughs> there are so many capable, talented people that are all wanting to make Missoula better. And so as long as they know of each other, yeah, you know, they can take whatever forward. And sometimes it doesn't require any local like government action, like nothing. It just takes like people knowing that they're both working on the same problem. And I think, um, you know, I think that's my, that's just how I function as a person. That's not, you know, anything to do with, you know. So I think we, we all can engage in our, like with our talents in, in different ways. And so I don't think there's like a right way. You know, you might not be that person that wants to show up on a Monday night and make public comment. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you can't send an email or we can't meet or there's something that you really support and want done or, a, you know, a great idea um, that deserves voice. Because I think the way our system is set up to, it really encourages the extro- extroverts. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, and so I think there's lots of different ways to engage. Um, and especially in our new COVID reality, there are so many more ways to engage than like showing up in person in Helena, in Helena, you know? And I think that that, if there's anything we take forward from this, you know, year long social experiment of living through a global pandemic, there are many ways to engage with each other. And hopefully we keep some of those because, um, you know, our, our old ways of doing things and we still don't capture everyone, but like it, it didn't capture everyone. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think that's a beautiful way to, to tie things up today. Councilwoman Heidi West. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I think that's going to be it from us folks. This is David Alangin from Ford, Montana signing off. You can subscribe to What the Helena on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye.